All right, good morning, friends. I hope you are well. Let's uh, flip over to Acts chapter 19, and we'll keep going. In Acts chapter 19, all right, last week uh, we looked at the great things that were going on there in Acts, and just noted the fact, and I think it's still important as we look at our um, our context and, and the world that these guys were operating in, right? Uh, the struggle that almost every single person is going through in this is uh, pretty significant. Most people in those days, they're just trying to get their normal calories. Most people don't eat enough. Most people have maybe a small little shack. And this is not like a guilt trip. We're just talking about where they're at. And so then you mix that in there with the tyrannical government of the Romans, um, which was incredible. I mean, in, in fact, for example, in Roman society, if you, were, if you were a slave owner and you committed a crime that you could be executed for, you could actually just offer up your slave and have him executed, and that would be the penalty for uh, what you had done. Uh, you're talking about Ephesus, which at this time is about 250,000 people. Think about that for a second. It's one of the, it's, it was noted to be the second largest city of antiquity. 250,000 people. And remember, this isn't, you know, we consider, uh, a lot of us probably consider our, our uh, society to be over-sexualized, and, and that's probably rightly so, and difficulties. But you have to remember in Ephesus at this time, it's, it's phallic symbols and embellished female statues everywhere. You go into a store, giant phallic symbol over the door. The fountains that line the streets, phallic symbols. Nudity, sex is everywhere. Am I trying to glorify that? No. Why am I bringing it up? Because remember, thousands of people are getting saved. That's really important. That God is not limited by the government. That God is not limited by the society or the culture. He's not limited by the values of the society, that culture. In fact, it seems to be the more tyrannical a government gets, the more... uh, unsatisfying in, in, in sexually and so forth that a culture gets, the more people realize the value of eternity. They realize that they're empty. They realize that what they have is not worthwhile. They realize that it's, it's vain, that it's dust and ashes. And just to encourage us that, you know, it doesn't matter what happens in this world as far as the gospel is concerned. It's fine to want to, to vote your conscience. It's fine to do all those things. We're not minimizing that. But what's more important than saving the Oval Office or something like that is the fact that the gospel is still going out and any person that wants to have a part in being involved in God's work, there's, it's wide open doors. And that's what we saw with Paul. Now we read this story and it's kind of, it's, it's probably shouldn't be humorous, but maybe in a dark humor type of way, it's kind of a funny story. You have the seven sons of Sceva, if you recall, and they are uh, professional exorcists, evidently. And they go to this person's house who is demon-possessed, and they try to do an exorcism, and so they stand over or around or however it worked out this person, and, and they say, you know, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of this man. And so the, the uh, uh, demon that's inside of him, that's not funny, but the demon that's inside of him basically says, hey, you know what? I recognize Jesus, and I know who he is, and I recognize Paul's name, and I know who he is, he goes, but I have no idea who you guys are. And then this demon-possessed person gains this supernatural strength, and he uh, 
Bess, he whoops these seven people. And it says that he strips them bare and he throws them out into the street. And so now you have these seven naked dudes out in the street, out in front of their somebody's house, and however that went down. And the rumor begins to spread. And it says that the whole city, the whole city be, you know, heard about the incident and that the name of Jesus began to be extolled. And the word extolled there, it means that it began to be made bigger, that people began to understand who he is. And it says, and people began to fear his name. And the word there being phobos, which probably sounds familiar, it's where we get our word phobia from, it's the idea of a terror. And so it's not saying that everybody in Ephesus got saved, what it's saying is there's this event that takes place, and all of a sudden, this wildly idolatrous, over-sexualized, uh, government-dominated nation begins to fear the name of Jesus and to recognize the power that's in this name. Maybe not that they're all saying, I want Jesus to forgive my sins or something like that, but they're beginning to recognize that name and they're beginning to understand who he is and the power he possesses. And that's where we're going to pick up here because I want to talk about a subject that I think is a, a little bit, um, uh, I don't know, de not debatable, but I think worth kind of exploring more and that is, how does the word of God flourish? How does it flourish? What is the word of God? What does it do? What does it mean that there, there is victory here? And so we can apply that to our, our own lives. So in Acts chapter 19, and in verse uh, 17, he says, And this became known, this is the event with the seven sons, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and, uh, of them and found it uh, came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, I know we read this and kind of ran over it a little bit at the end of our time last week, but I really want to focus, this on, focus on this idea that the word prevailed mightily. So if we back up there and we consider what we read, and I think this is important not to excuse or endorse sin, but to understand the power of salvation, many who were believers, these are believers, and they were believers that were practicing idolatrous magic. So they were believers, but they were also involved in idolatry. And for many of us, that, that doesn't compute, that can't be. But it's important to understand what the cross did in our hearts and did for us. See, when Jesus went to the cross, we're told that he paid for the penalty of our sin. See, that's what the blood was. It was a picture just as a, a father would bring his family or a, a single mother would bring her family or just as uh, in the old covenant, you would bring that, that sheep and you would slay that sheep in front of the, the uh, or that goat or even a bull, depending on the offering, in front of uh, the, the priest. And the, the priest, you as a dad or you know, whoever's the head of the household at that point, they hold the animal and it, uh, tied to the altar, and the priest takes that dagger and slices the throat of that animal in front of the whole family. And the, the kids, the mom, the dad sit there and watch this animal bleed into a basin that the priest holds 
and it, as it bleeds out and it's screaming and the gurgling and all that happens, and your kids are watching this, and then the priest takes that blood and there'll be different things for, for different sacrifices, whether it was a whole burnt offering, a sin offering, but ultimately take that blood and depending on the offering, throw it on the certain side of the, uh, the altar, a bronze burning altar. And the smell of that burnt blood would permeate the area. And there was, the idea was, as, the, as I should have mentioned, as, the, as the, the animal bleeds out, there's this putting of the hand upon the head of the animal. And it was, it was symbolic. My sin transfers to this animal, and this animal pays the penalty for my sin. So every kid from zero years old and up for their entire life saw this graphic, radical picture of what their sin cost, that it cost death. And then when Christ went to the cross, when he bled out, when he was slain for our sin, it's the same thing, only not in in allegory or metaphor, not in symbolism, but in actuality, that his blood was shed on our behalf. And that by him shedding his blood, as John calls him, the Lamb of God, that our sin was taken from us and forgiven. And so the idea is that he truly paid for sin. It got paid for. Just as you and I can go to the store and buy an apple or buy something, after you purchase it, you don't later go back, well, here's another nickel because I took a bite. I, got, I, you know, I, know, I realize it, but I feel like I still owe you. It's such a good apple. I want to pay you more. Just be, No, it's yours. And so it is the gift of salvation that he paid for our salvation that that brutal scene was not to be a scene of guilt or shame for us, but a scene of rejoicing and joy and peace because he finally paid once and for all for sin. It didn't cover it. The Old Testament says that sin was blotted out by the blood of bulls and goats, meaning blood was smeared over it but he actually took it away and forgave it. Why is this so important? Because these people are saved. Saved people struggle with things like magic and murder and drugs because we're just broken people. It's important to realize these are saved people. But something happens to these saved individuals. They actually become disciples. They move from just being someone who believes and has accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ to someone who now is saying, I want to follow this person. I want to be involved with Jesus. I I am going to forsake. Think about what these books represent. What are the points of witchcraft? Power over my environment, over other people. Comfort through power. Power gives us comfort, doesn't it? Isn't it comforting when the bank account's full? It's a lot more comforting than when it's in the negative. They give them provision, lest that's the hope of it. All the way back, it doesn't matter if it's Moloch or Asherah or any false god. They're all to provide the same thing. Security, provision, and power. So these people are bringing these books, these spell books and... These books that, that, that in, in a dark, occultish way, they believe, and perhaps they did, give them some sort of power and provision and all these things, a peace. 
And they're taking those old things that gave them peace and comfort and power and provision, and they're throwing them into a fire. 50,000 gold pieces, or silver pieces. I, that sounds like a lot. I don't, nobody, it's, it, it doesn't have a numeric value. You know, sometimes the scripture will say drachma or this or that. There's no value like that assigned. But you can guess as well as I can, I'm sure 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of books. That's a lot of comfort, as it were. That's a lot of power. That's a lot, that's a lot that was given up that day. So I just want to point out as a side note, we are all dealing with stuff. And we are all working through stuff. Let's never look at one another and say, could you actually do that and be saved? It's a false argument. We can do all sorts of crazy stuff as saved individuals. It just means the Holy Spirit is not happy with what we're doing, and he's bringing conviction and encouragement and trying to draw us back to himself. Salvation is the free gift of God, and it's by grace. Ephesians 2, that's why I had to be so emphatic for it. Ephesians chapter 2, that we've been saved by grace, God's favor, saved by grace through faith. Our faith, when we said, yes, I trust you, Jesus, and I need your forgiveness, then his favor saved us. That's how we got saved. And that's why he goes on to say, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not baptism. It's not the King James Bible. It's not not practicing witchcraft. It's not tithing. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not anything else. If it were the slightest work, if, it was, if we got saved by grace through faith and then we continued to be saved by going to church, man, we just boast in how much we go to church. Isn't it? God knows us so well. He says, you know what? I couldn't have ever made it out of works. If there was any work that you had to do, you'd boast in it. He knows us. If it was you get saved by grace and then not cutting your hair, we'd all be like, look how long my hair is. Check out how saved I am. I take vitamins to make it grow more because I'm that much more saved. You know, if it was any other thing, we would boast in that. And we'd say, look at everybody. No, it's by grace. Strictly because he favors you. He loves you. He cares about you. Christ went to Calvary because he wants fellowship with you. So these people have discovered something. They've discovered that there's actually a life with Christ that goes beyond forgiveness, and they've discovered that Christ can be my provision, that he can be my comfort, that he can be all that I need to be him to be. He's everything to me. And the commentary that the Scripture gives us on that, and I think it's worth noting the um, flow of this, that these things occur, and then the commentary is this. So, or because, the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. So how does the word of God prevail mightily? What's happening here in Ephesus? Is what happens here in Ephesus happening in my life? Is it happening in my church? Is it happening in my community? Are these things going on? Now, the, the church and the community will always be a reflection of what's happening to us personally. Does that make sense? If we are not personally being renewed, there's not going to be a lot of renewal in the community other than other people that are experiencing renewal and then moving forward in that. Does that make sense? So the, the question becomes, and I think it's worthwhile, and this is more like, number one, what is the Word of God? What is it? Remember, they have no Bible. Their Bible is not coming. The Bible is not going to come into existence for like 300 more years. 
the vast majority of the letters have not been written yet. The letters that we have to the churches at Ephesus and Philippians. The book of Revelation is still like 45 years out-ish from here. There's a lot of time that's going to pass. So the word of God isn't what we have right today, in a sense, physically speaking. They didn't have this. This isn't what was growing. This isn't what was happening. The word of God, the word, the word means, logos, it just means it's the expression of a thought. The expression of something, expressing whether it's a thought or a concept, it's to express something. It's the expression or the communication of God. And I want to bring this up because for many of us, I think, and I've done it too, we've looked at the Bible almost like a genie. And, and, and what we do is we, and, and I'm not saying it can't work, but we do weird stuff sometimes, and I'm not saying it can't work. So please don't make me an offender for a word. But we'll do stuff like, I'm really discouraged. <laughs> These are the words of the covenant of the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel the land of Moab. I'm supposed to make a covenant with the land of Moab? What? That doesn't, that doesn't seem right. Right, we, 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 we go, we, we, we come up to him and we go, well, maybe if I, you know, I kind of rub the Bible and then I'll get the right word from me. I'll feel better. Our society is honestly, and who we are, sin, it's trained us to kind of have this drugstore Jesus. I'm anxious or I'm discouraged or something like that. I do nothing ever to actually engage with Christ, but when I'm feeling a certain way that I don't like, well, then I want to pop the Jesus pill. Then I want to feel better. Going to church can be a really great thing. It also can be a complete waste of time. It's a really fascinating dynamic how the word works. We don't just rub the word or try to get and then feel better. But that's how we've kind of been trained in society. If I'm depressed, I watch cat videos on Facebook. If I, or I go to Netflix or I go to alcohol or I go to weed or I do something to try to fix that moment, not realizing that perpetuating that ultimately what does bring me right to the same place? It, that's why they call it a vicious circle. So number one, what is the word of God? We might be familiar with this. John chapter 1. If it's not, and, and I want to draw a, also a little bit of a parallel here. Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. Same word, logos. In the beginning was the expression of thought, or the expression of the thought. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything, uh, was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jump down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And it goes on, but we'll stop there. You see, when the word of God prevails, or what the word of God is, it's the communication of Jesus. And that's, I'm not trying to sound like mysterious, like, ooh, that's incredible. No, it literally is God communicating to us who he is, his will, and what he's done to accomplish that will. The fact that he loves us. Other people have said it, and it's true. It's the giant love letter. 
That's what we have today, an expression of who God is and what he has for us and what he wants for us. And it's, it's important to understand that, for example, to the Pharisees, Jesus told the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But the scriptures speak of me, but you will not come to me that you might have life. See, the Bible in itself, just roll with me here, don't check me out yet. It's just a book without Christ. That's all it is. It's important because it speaks about the Lord of glory. That's why it's important. There's nothing sacred about India paper. It smells good, but there's nothing sacred about it. There's nothing sacred about red little ribbons that you can put in it. It's important because it leads us to him, our creator, the lover of our souls, the one who has great things for us. So when we treat it like a genie, when we treat it just like, oh, I just need a a Jesus pill pick-me-up, we really circumvent and ignore what God ultimately has for us. It's like trying to get all the healing in the world without involving ourselves in any of the treatment. Does that make sense? It's like trying to be a healthy person and, and, and never doing anything to take a step forward except for taking diet pills or something, which we know is not good. So if, if God is trying to express himself, then it must mean that he wants us to know him. And it, it, the same sentiment is, is related to he, in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, he says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, uh, excuse me, at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited more excellent than theirs. And it goes on to show that Christ is not, he's not an angel and he's actually superior to angels. But the point here is that, you know, the, the author of Hebrews tells us that in the past, God spoke. He spoke through the law. You can see the heart of God through the law. Not just the sacrificial system, but my favorite laws are things like, and this might seem a little weird, I love the law that says, hey, if someone pukes in a wooden or a clay bucket, you have to throw it away. That's in Levitical law. Why? Because nobody knows what bacteria is. Nobody knows what a virus is. Nobody knows what a microbe is. And so God looks at his people and says, I don't want you guys to spread the the flu. If someone pukes in that bucket, you have to chuck it. It's too porous. You can't clean it. He doesn't go into all that because they'd be like, uh, what? He just says, no. If someone pukes in a bucket that's wooden or clay, out it goes. Got to throw it away. Because he cares for his people. It's the same reason he says, hey, if you have a field, and if you look at how the, the, the fields were divided, or not the fields, but the land and so forth, there are going to be property lines that are straight. And he says, if you have a field and you harvest it, you're not allowed to harvest the corners. He says, that's for poor people to get. He says, if you're harvesting your field and you drop a piece of corn, you're not allowed to pick it up. That's pretty wild. 
Would any of you vote for that verse or for that, for that to be true? Do you, how much do you think the farmers of America are going to be like, yes, we want that law in America. But it was God's law. And the reason it was God's law was so that the poor and the needy, the orphan and the widow, after you harvest, could walk through and, just, and have food. It was God's social safety net for people. Whether it was bad luck or irresponsibility or whatever it was, God had a safety because he cared about them. He doesn't want poor people to starve. He, doesn't want, he, doesn't, he wants them to be able to eat and, and these things. So in the law, we saw revealed the heart of God. We saw the wrath of God and how much that he hates sin. God hates sin because it destroys us. Sin is completely contrary to what God wants for us. Not because he just hates sex and fun and weed, but because self-medication and trying to find satisfaction in sexual pleasure is empty and will lead you to dark, lonely places. That's why he hates those things. It's not that he just created them and goes, watch this, I'm going to deny my people fun. <laughs> That's crazy. But we act like that sometimes. That God, you just, you, know, you just don't know what's fulfilling and what's fun. You know, everything you say no to is just the best. We're weird that way. He hates sin because it destroys us. So he spoke to us through the prophets, all sorts of weird ways. Isaiah lays on his side nude in front of a city for, I can't remember, like a year or something like that. You know, Ezekiel ends up making his weird bread over human poo, and then Ezekiel's like, oh, God, that please, can I not do that? And God goes, you know what, you're right. You can make it over cow poo. Why? These demonstrations of what his people were doing, what was going on, he's demonstrating these stark realities of what was happening. He communicated to us through his prophets. It's not just negative. We have all the, you have Isaiah 53, that the Messiah will come, that he'll suffer. Isn't it interesting that that's one of the majorly rejected prophecies then and now by the Jews? The suffering Savior. We're just not into suffering at all. So he communicated in past times in all these different ways. But he says this, now he has communicated, or he says this, spoken to us by his son. That literally reads, spoken to us by the person of son, or by son. And he is the exact radiance of his glory. In other words, when you look at Christ, he radiates the weightiness, or the illumination, how you'd like to think of glory. It literally translates, or the idea is the weightiness. He emanates that of God, of the Father. Everything the Father ever wanted to say to us, he portrayed in Christ. Because Christ is God incarnate. He's God the Son. So when we look at Jesus, now we can't look at Jesus, right? We don't see Jesus. Maybe you've had a dream or perhaps a vision. But for the most part, we see him here. We see him in his word. But there again, his word is only to draw us to himself. Now we have this word and it's very reliable. And I want to make a point here. This is important. His word is reliable. And we can, we can trust his word, and it's how we see Christ through his word. And we would say, we, well, I don't know if you would say, I would say, <laughs> I don't want to speak for you, that in, in its original forms, that the scripture is inerrant. There's no errors in it. But we have, to be, we have to acknowledge that what we have in our English today is very reliable, but it's not inerrant. You have to wonder, why does Solomon in Chronicles say that he has 4,000 garages for his chariot? And in 1 Kings, we're told that he has 40,000 at the same timeline, in the same place. 
And if you look at the Hebrew, there's a little dot between 40 and 4. Why does your Bible in Mark 16 have brackets around half of Mark 16? Because it's not there in about 50% of the scraps that we have of the Gospels. Why does your Bible have brackets about around the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 10? Because it's not there in about 50% of the scraps we have of the Gospel of John. Anybody feeling scared and worried? We can sometimes. But it's important to note that even though there's disputed things in the Scriptures, there's a few things that are never disputed in the Scripture. About 0.5%, as I understand it, of the Scripture is disputed. And by disputed, I mean those passages that are in some of the, the uh, uh, Scriptures that we have, some of the copies, and aren't in others. But things like the deity of Christ, there's no Scripture somewhere that says Mary's actually the fourth part of the Godhead. There's no disputed scripture somewhere that says that, that uh, Jesus didn't rise bodily. Those things don't exist. Everything that's in dispute is just peripheral stuff. Does that make sense? In other words, you can take the woman caught in adultery. It's a wonderful story. And if you remove it from the Bible, are you less saved? Is there any assault on who Jesus is in his essence? No, none of that. And I just bring that up because, as a side note, a lot of us, we, we say, and we mean well, we say the Bible is inerrant. But just be careful, because if you say something like that to someone who has a lot of biblical training, they will wreck you in a conversation. Because it's just, it's, it's just we, there's discrepancies. But there's no discrepancies that like, somehow we have to worry about or that dispute the tenets of the faith. There's a, a great book. I actually brought it up here. Uh, I have like, a, well, I don't. The church has a bunch of these. It's, can we still believe the Bible? Spoiler alert, answer is yes. Um, but it's a, it's a great book. It's written by Craig Blomberg. It is not nighttime reading. It's like two cups of coffee with your glasses on and a journal out kind of reading. Um, but uh, Craig Blomberg, um, he, he was on the board that translated the ESV, and he was on the board that translated the NIV. Uh, he's from Denver Seminary. He's, he's like their New Testament grand poobah. And he's a really cool guy. I actually emailed him one time, and he got back to me in like five minutes uh, about a question. So he's, he's uh, apparently likes nobodies. But all that to say is, you know, we have, if you want to read a book about it, the scripture is trustworthy. But to illustrate the point, the scripture points us to Christ, who is inerrant, who never makes mistakes, who's never let us down. So we have the scripture, we read the scripture, we love the scripture. So what's the point? Why do I bring all that up? Because the scripture, Jesus gave us a really excellent way that the scripture works. It's called the sower and the sea. You may be familiar with that because the sower sows the same seed, right? But the seed falls on different grounds. In other words, it's not the seed that determines the amount of fruit. Isn't that interesting? Because a lot of times when we take the genie approach to the Bible, we think the Bible controls how much fruit I have in my life. It does not. Our hearts do. And this is a very important distinction because if we take the genie approach, and, and maybe you've said this, or maybe you've heard people say this. You know what? I tried Jesus, and it didn't work. Or I'm going through something in my life, and you know what? The Bible doesn't work. Or something to the effect of, I asked, and I wanted something from God, and he didn't do it. He didn't work on my behalf. 
And typically what it boils down to when you interview these people, and here's the thing, I'm not trying to minimize someone's bad experiences. I'm not trying to say that people don't, be, uh, that don't get victimized. I'm not even saying that there aren't times in our lives where God is, is silent. I mean, for crying out loud, in Psalm 13, David's like, answer me lest I sleep the sleep of death. <laughs> You're like, whoa, okay. But you know this? So there are times in our lives where you know, emotions and difficulties and all those things, they happen. But this idea that somehow the Bible, God's word, failed us, it is a lie from hell. And a lot of times, and if, and not, I'm not speaking to every situation or your situations, but a lot of times when you begin to ask questions and someone says, you know, I read the Bible and it doesn't matter. It doesn't help. It doesn't fix anything. I'll be honest. A lot of times I can agree with them. It's noteworthy that the hard-packed ground, the verb there that Jesus uses, that it says that, that these are those who don't understand the word, it literally means these are those who don't put it together. It's, it's, to, it's to put things together. And there can be a lot of reasons why we don't put things together. It can be a lack of intellect. I mean, other people, not us, clearly. We're really smart. But it can be a lack of intellect. It can be a lack of interest. It can be a lack of blood glucose level. It can be all sorts of things can cause us to... It can be hardness of heart. It can be desires for other things. There's a million things that can prevent us from putting the word together, from, from allowing it and ingesting it into our lives and our hearts. But that, that's the hard pack. So when we don't allow the word into our hearts, it says that Satan is faithful to come and take it away. So when, when we are in hard times, so much depends on how we approach the scripture. If we approach God's word as you better... What we're saying is, I have a desire, and you better give it to me, or I judge you unfaithful and not good. Haven't we all done that? We've wanted something. We thought something should go down a certain way. We thought someone shouldn't treat us a certain way. We thought God should have provided something. All these different ways, and it doesn't happen. And we say, you know what? I tried, and you, it, it failed. When in reality, was what happened is, we tried, our hearts were hard, and we rejected what God had for us, and we said, that's not good. This is actually what's good. And that can go for anything. It can be in a conversation where you want to scream somebody down. It can be a relationship that you know you shouldn't be in. It could be a relationship that you know you need to mend. It could be a million different things that you're interaction with, and in reality, you're saying or I'm saying, what I want is better. And when I do that, what happens I thwart God's word. It's not any less powerful. He will come back. He will judge with equity. He will judge the nations. He will purify his people. He will redeem Israel. He will do all those things. God's purpose can never be thwarted. But his will is thwarted by us on the daily. And so if we truly desire to see this, the word of God prevail, that's not up to the Holy Spirit or to God. He's already provided that. That's up to us. Notice that the word of God prevailing, it came after the books were burned. It came after because that was the fruit. The miracle of the books burning was the fact that they had received the word of God with joy or at least with conviction and decided to move on it in their lives. The whole idea that we can come to church, and again, I'm not trying to be rude or call anybody out, but the whole idea that I can just come to church, get my free coffee, maybe get pepped up by a word, and then be a different person when I walk out is a lie. Go to the movies. It'll be more entertaining. 
See, it is up to us to allow the word of God to implant in our hearts. And when we allow other loves and other cares of this life, and again, to reference the same parable, the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this life, that's where we end up shortchanging ourselves and missing out for God's original intention, which is relationship and fellowship with him, an actual communication with the Almighty, the partaking of the divine nature, not that we become gods, but that we partake of God and get to experience his goodness and his holiness in his way. And every ill word and every small lie and every hatred and every anxiety that we allow ourselves to get into and to, to kind of roll in and ingest, it's, 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 it's destructive for us and it's grievous to God. It's not grievous to God because he's a crummy, guilt-laying father. It's grievous to God because it just it robs him of what he wants, which is your heart, your life. Not a life so he can dominate, a life so he can bless it. A life so he can infuse in it. Christianity is a crazy thing because we're really called for every moment to be in fellowship with God and to be honest about it when we're not. James puts it this way, if you wouldn't mind flipping over to James. I learned last service that James is right after Hebrews. <laughs> so I, I flipped right by it. I was like, I could have sworn it was. I wouldn't swear, though. But, you know, I'm just <laughs> but in James chapter 1, so this is what does God's word do? It regenerates us. Peter tells us it regenerates us. It grows us. It saves people. Matthew tells us that it's like bread to the believer. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, it fully equips us. See, these are all things, these are all interactions. The drugstore Jesus never helps, at least not eternally. The idea that I can just dabble, it's a joke. Have you been through the checkout line lately? You can't dabble with Christ and not absorb the world. The world. That's a joke. This idea, and, and again, this isn't like a guilt thing, like get on board. or what. This is just if you actually want to experience victory and joy in your life, if I want to experience joy and victory in my life, I have to allow God to work in my life. Because this whole fence thing, it's a joke. It's misery. It's miserable to love the world, to be in Christ's camp, and to write love letters all day long. Wish I was there. Miss the parties. Miss the sex. Miss the weed. Oh, I miss it so much. Yeah, I'm saved, but oh, I, that life was so satisfying. That's why I got saved, because my life was so great. Oh, wait a minute. It's a miserable place to be. Amen. James says this in verse 19. He says, knowing this, my beloved brother. So he's saying this. Know this, people that I really love and I really care for. He says, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you're a parent and you want a life verse, there it is. As a side note, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You can, it's amazing, this is a complete side note. You can dominate children, can't you? They're pretty easy to dominate. I've heard. Because you're gigantic and you can literally physically make them do anything you want them to do. But you and I both know if we take that, if we use man's wrath 
I'm not saying discipline. I'm saying wrath. If we use man's wrath to try to help our children, it will never accomplish God's purpose in their life. It will not. Uh, it's, it's a tough thing to learn, I think, especially as fathers, because we want to just come in and be like, nope, you're going to do this. This is how it's going to go. I will make your hands. You're feeding yourself now. You're drinking your milk, you know, whatever. You, and all they'll learn is, wow, my dad's really good at dominating me. That's all they'll learn from that. If you want to help somebody that you love, man's wrath, it cannot accomplish the purpose of God. It cannot. Now, discipline with a child, loving discipline, loving spanking, I know that that's a faux pas. Every mommy blog on the planet, it feels like right now, is saying that spanking hurts your child. And I'm not trying to be offensive here. It's like I set out to do this. The Bible says it does not. So we need to ask ourselves, is amateur mommy blog, is she right or he right? Or is the word right? Because lovingly disciplining our children, caring for them, praying with them afterwards, explaining to them that you love them too much to just let them do what they want to do. You know, whatever it is. So sometimes spanking doesn't work. And I, I, there's kids, man, you can whoop the snot out of them. You ever seen those? And they don't care. I remember years and years ago. <laughs> uh, I, th- I can't even remember. It must have been Ava. But Tam asked her, do you want a spanking? She goes, yep. And I was like, excuse me, Tam. <laughs> You're going to regret that statement. No, I was... <laughs> But you know, there's things you can lovingly take away. You can lovingly apply, apply pressure in areas. There, you know, um, but discipline, we're not saying r- discipline bad. We're saying wrath is bad. With one another, wrath will never accomplish it. I just want you to stop sinning because it's bad. <laughs> Has that ever won anybody? Like, oh, well, if you want that, shoot, I'm on it. My bad. I'll do what you want me to do. It doesn't work. Anyway. So James here, moving on, letting the, the, the word of God work in our heart. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. So James says, look, you have to do away with this filthiness and wickedness. Well, let's be honest. Treating people poorly is wickedness. Manipulating people is wickedness. Lying to people is wickedness. It's not that it's like, oh, those, those aren't a big deal. I mean, come on, you know, it's not a big deal. They were acting like a jerk anyway. They kind of deserved it. It's wickedness because you're mistreating the people that God loves, the people that, that, that Christ poured out his blood so that they'd be redeemed. There are no small interactions with humans. That does not exist. How we treat one another, how we interact with one another, that's who we really are. If I'm rude to people and I treat people poorly, if I despise them in my mind, that's who I am. I'm someone who believes I'm superior and I'm proud and it's disgusting to Jesus because he took the form of a servant to win human beings back to himself. So first he says, look, we have to do away with filthiness and rampant wickedness. That's not for those people, it's for us. And we need to receive with meekness the implanted word. We need to hold ourselves back. We need to be repentant people, turning back to Christ and allow the implanted word. Isn't that interesting? Receive it with meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The word of God is never weak. 
the message of who Jesus is and the power he has for you and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, those are, they're never unable. The whole thing of God didn't is not true. Or he failed, I guess would be a better way to put it. He's never failed. He may not have given you what you want when you thought you wanted it or needed it, but he's a good parent. No good parent gives their kid something that would cause them harm. No good parent says, yes, you can have ice cream three times a day for your meals. That'll be fine. No good parent says, oh, congratulations on your fourth birthday. Here's a machete. You saw Gilligan's Island, and now you want to chop bushes. Here you go, four-year-old. I just sharpened it. No good parent does that. I mean, unless you have an exceptional four-year-old who's like a ninja, I guess. But the point being is that you don't provide that for your kids. Oh, Yes, you watch the A-team. Here's a blowtorch. Have fun with that. We never do that. We never do it because we're trying to be good parents. And how many times have we asked for the blowtorch? And God's like, yeah, no. And we're like, you hate me. He's just like, no, I just love everybody else. I don't want you to crisp them. He's good. He's never failed. It's never happened. And then he goes on. He says this. So the implanted word, that it speaks. it takes time, right? It, it doesn't just fall. It implants. It develops roots. Something's growing. It's organic. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4 that it's living, that the word of God is like a two-edged sword that's living. Something's happening. It's fruitful. It's not, it's not producing like a factory. It's fruit. It takes time which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, but, uh, excuse me, no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." This is not a legalistic verse. This is not saying that if you do stuff for God, he will love you more and then he will bless you. That is not a true statement. That's never true. That's always legalism. God loves you as much today as he will always love you. And there is nothing you can do, good or bad, to like move the love meter or something like that. He loves you. He sent his son for you. What you're doing and how you live and how I live is determining the amount of relationship that we allow God to have with us. That's what's happening right now in this life. That's what's at stake here. So he's making this point and he's saying, look, allow the word to implant. And then he puts it this way. He gives us kind of a definition of what implanting is. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. And he says, deceiving yourselves. The point is this. He says, someone who hears the word and doesn't do anything about it, they deceive themselves. Now, it could be a whole spectrum of deception. We could hear the word and say, well, I'm just not like that. I'm a good person. I don't do that. You deceive yourself. You've moved from being a hearer, you moved from, from hearing and doing to, I'm okay. There's nothing for me to be involved with in this. I've deceived myself. Or the deception could be you hear the word and someone's saying, look, pursue God with your heart. Take steps now. 
Don't buy into the lie that, that the word has failed you. And you go, no, you know what? That's kind of a good word for someone, but not for me, because he's failed me. You've deceived yourself. You've deceived yourself. We can deceive ourselves. We're, have you ever, it's incredible what the human mind is able to do in self-deception, isn't it? The stuff that we can make ourselves believe or think, the things that, I mean, it's just, it's scary. There's a reason why the, the scripture tells us that our hearts are desperately wicked, and who can know it? We can't even know our own hearts. Again, another great reason for the word of God. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, the end of that is this, that the word of God is like a two-edged sword. It's living, and it cuts between the soul and the spirit. It's an interesting statement. It cuts asunder, if you're a King Jameser, which why not? I mean, if the word asunder is in there, that's solid. It cuts asunder the soul and the spirit. And what that means is that God's word the revelation of who Jesus is, as I allow it to be implanted in my heart, it's actually able to slice between what is of God's spirit and what is from my soul. That's super helpful, right? Because we have all sorts of crazy thoughts. We have all sorts of things that we come up with and you know, just ridiculousness. And there's all sorts of lies out there. And all. But the word, when it's allowed to implant in our hearts... It's so wonderful to know what's of you and what's of God, isn't it? And when we say something or we do something, and for the word to come in as I'm letting him, and to say, wow, James, that was, that was of you. That was of your flesh. That was not of my spirit. What a glory to receive conviction like that. Now, if I'm a hearer only, I go, that's a good call. Oh, well. And I move on with my life. Wasn't that big of a deal. That person wasn't that important anyway. I deserve this. Blah, blah, blah. All my self-justifications. Deceiving myself. But if I become a doer and I go, you know what? That right, I need to go back to that person. Or I need to deal with this in my life. Or I need to do with that, you know, whatever it might be. He says that person becomes blessed in their doing. So you go from being deceived to being blessed. And that's how the word of God works. It's always the same seed, but it's dependent on your heart and my heart. So the question is, what are we doing with God's word? Let's be honest. You don't have to be honest with me. I don't really matter that much, but you got to be honest with God. Because here's the thing. If God is speaking to your heart, and he's trying to move you forward in your life, and you walk out that door with doing nothing, you're going to be the same person next week when, you're gonna, when you come back, and I will too. And then we'll say to ourselves in our rage and our grief, why am I not different? Why isn't my church different? Why isn't my community different? Why am I still like this? And it'll be the same answer every time because we walked out and did nothing and deceived ourselves. And then we'll blame the media and our spouses and our children and our church staff and we'll blame everybody else in the entire world except for ourselves. It was their fault. When the reality is the implanted word, it's a moment-by-moment -moment decision. What am I going to do with it? We're all accountable for what God has given us and how he speaks to us. There's no sin that's too small to deal with. There's no sin that's worth sliding over. There's no ill word or hatred that isn't worth making right. When we say that there is, it's deceiving ourselves. These are really important because I think you guys love the Lord. 
And I think you guys want to make a difference in your community. And I think for many of us, we get stuck in these weird places in our mind and in our sin, and we're just waiting for the Holy Spirit zap where I just don't feel like sinning anymore. That day is not going to come. Yes, there is deliverance in some areas sometimes, but guess what? You will most likely struggle with sin (laughs) until you die, just as I will. So it's a day-by-day appropriation. And so the image he gives, he says, look, if you are a doer, if you're, excuse me, a listener and not a doer, it's just like if you go into the mirror in the morning. I don't know what your shower is like, but like when we take a shower at our house, the whole thing just steams up like crazy. And so like a lot of times, you know, I take my shower uh, usually around 6 o'clock on Sunday morning. And so then I have to like get dressed and then open the door and let all the steam go out. And so I, you know, I can see myself in the mirror, and I, you know, I get dressed, whatever, and then I go out. But if I forget to come back in and comb my hair, then it's all messy. So the point is that when you're a listener and not a doer, you're somebody who comes up, you approach a mirror, you go, oh, well, okay, yeah, I need, to, I need to fix a few things. And then you leave, and you never fix those things. And so you're just a hearer. You're not a doer of it. That's the point, that you forget what you look like when you leave the mirror. You forget, oh, I have to fix my hair, or oh, I have to, you know, whatever, get that booger out of my nose, whatever it might be. You just forget that, and then you go on your merry way, and everybody else around you can see what's going down. But we just go, oh, I forgot. I don't, I don't, even, I don't even know. That's, that's what he's saying. And then he goes on, he says, verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious, this is, this is a hard word right here. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but receives his, excuse me, uh, but deceives his heart, this person is worthless. The reason I harp on how we treat one another so much is because it's the core issue. It's the teller of who we really are. And it's the teller of what's in our hearts. Fornication, drugs, whatever, yeah, you know, they are what they are and they're bad and they're going to destroy us. But the litmus test of who I really am is what are my words like? What do I say to people? What are my words like in my head? What do I think about people? Do I give them the benefit of the doubt? Do I care about them? And he, and he makes this point. This is crazy. So when he uses the word religion, the idea is just the, kind of like your systematic theology, what you believe to, uh, in, about Christ. Does that make sense? Because a lot of times we use the word religion in kind of a negative sense. Oh, the dead religion. He's using it in the word in the sense of like what you believe about Christ, your, your beliefs. So if anyone thinks he is religious, so if you think you're faithful to what Christ, or if I think I'm faithful to what Christ has called me to, and I don't bridle my tongue. What's a bridle? You guys know what a bridle is? It's that big metal thing that you stick in a horse. It's got the little bit on there that they can play with with their tongue so they'll kind of chill out a little bit. So if you don't pull the old reins on your tongue. This is crazy. He says, you deceive yourself. You're deceived in your heart, in your innermost being. You're deceived. I'm deceived. If I trash talk, I'm deceived about how in tune I actually am with Christ. This is sobering. Because he goes on to say, the person's religion is worthless. doesn't say the person is worthless. doesn't say the person is unsaved. It says that what you believe to be acting upon your life is of no value to you. It's hard pack. 
or it's stony or it's thorny. It's not allowing the word to produce fruit. So for us, for Christians, for people that are just broken and trying to figure out life and, and just trying to sometimes please God and sometimes we please ourselves even though we don't want to, people that are deceived, trying not to be deceived, we're hot messes. It's who we are. And that's okay. God saved hot messes. He's still saving hot messes. But the reality is that for you and I in, in today, in this very moment, we can let the word of God prevail in our hearts and our lives. You know, the, the good ground, it says it's, it's the honest, it says it's the good and the beautiful heart is what it translates to out in English. But the idea is it's the honest heart and the heart of good quality. In other words, it's the heart that is, is honest with, with itself and with God and the heart that it's quality, not like one heart is better than another, spiritually speaking, but the idea, it's of, it's of good, um, how to put it, it's open, it's soft, it's of good quality. See, so fruit isn't from being super Christian. It's not from having the Bible memorized from one side to the other. Oh, well, I guess that would be cool. It's from a heart that is honest and receptive to the word of God and then acts upon it. So the cool thing is, and this is, maybe this is for someone, maybe it's not. But if you're in a place where you said the word doesn't work, lovingly, respectfully, you're wrong. With all the respect in the world. I'm not minimizing maybe what you've gone through or, or what you're going through, but you're wrong. And I would just ask these questions, just, just not in an in a assertive way or an angry way. Have you confessed your faults to one another and pray with people? You've been honest. Have you invested in something more than just showing up on Sunday morning at, at 10.29 and leaving right after the service is done? Have you invested in friends? Have you invested in, if you, if you read the scriptures and you don't understand them, have you invested in finding a way to understand the scriptures? I really think, and this is an opinion, I think one of the biggest travesties in Christianity, one of the biggest wrongs we've done is we've just told people, oh, you're bummed out, read the Bible. See you later. Because unless you're understanding it, unless you're, uh, you know, even have a clue about what you're reading, it's worthless. So if you've said the word of God has failed you, have you found a way to study it that works for you? Have you sought out people to help you? In my experience, typically the answers are no. Typically when someone says the word of God is failing, they're holed up in their home or at their job and they let no one in, and they're not interested in outside perspectives, they feel assaulted when you would even suggest that there might be a way out, is that where you're at today? With all the respect in the world, you don't have to be there. You can take steps today, every one of us, to this very day, to let the word of God prevail and find the joy that's promised us. The question is, will you do it? Will you? Will I? Or will we walk out that door and in two days from now, wonder, why is everything the same? Why is my church high gone? Where, why is my mountaintop camp gone? Why is this gone? Because the word of God, it never fails. He never fails. And as much, as for as much as we let him into our life, will be as for much as we experience the joy and the peace and the relationship that he's always promised us. So I'd encourage you. 
If you're bummed out today, if you're feeling destroyed today, if you're feeling like the word of God has failed you today, there's no condemnation in Christ. No one's mad here. But if you're feeling that way, come up for prayer. Make a, take a step. Pray with the person next to you. I guarantee you, if you want to come up for prayer, there's nobody in the audience that's going, look at that person, come up for prayer. They must really suck at life. We already know you suck at life. That's why you're here. You know? So don't walk out of here if God's speaking to your heart without doing something about it and letting the word implant. Father, thank you for your kindness and your great grace and your great mercy. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word, the perfect law of liberty. Lord, thank you that you, your word tells us that for freedom you've set us free, but not to go back into a yoke of bondage. Lord, help us to walk in freedom, navigate freedom. Help us to allow your word to implant in our hearts. Lord, we, we acknowledge and we praise you. Every good thing that's ever happened to us is from you. Lord, every gift, every smile, every elation is from you because you've made every good thing. Lord, we honor you. We want to extol you. We want to just confess how good you are. Lord, we ask also that in this coming week, you would give us opportunities to speak to others about you. We pray that you would give us opportunities and show us to where we need to repent. Lord, that we would turn back to you. Help us to mend relationships. Help us to end relationships we shouldn't have. Help us, Lord, to rely on you uh, for all uh, of our needs and not to ever despise you, thinking that we know better. Lord, you're very good, and we appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.